Uh, thank you very much. It's uh, good to be back here uh, with you. I've seen once before, but also quite a lot in uh, California. I want to talk to you about uh, motion leadership, this uh, concept we've developed in the last 12 months, really. And motion leadership is, first, as it connotes, it's the kind of leadership that causes positive movement. So that's uh, in a school, in a school district, in an entire state. And there are three features of it. Uh, one is that practice drives practice. Although I started as an academic, I no longer look for solutions from my fellow academics, strangely enough. I look for solutions in practice. And what we are doing is capturing practice, uh, being clear about it, and uh, propelling it further uh, by having the kinds of strategies I'm going to uh, share with you this, this morning. So practice drives practice is one big thing. Second is the speed of quality implementation. We now know enough, we, I mean you and me, to actually get strong turnarounds, not only in schools, but in entire districts, within a fairly short period of time, a year to three years. Uh, and sustaining it is another part of it, but uh, definitely this practical turnaround speed of quality implementation. And the third part of this is that we're working in larger swaths of the system, uh, which means that not just individual schools, but whole districts and whole states, uh, whole countries for that matter. Uh, so that, that's the, the notion, and uh, it all comes from practice. I'm going to set the stage for you and then interact with you about a lot of this. You can get more information on my website. You see it at the bottom of the screen. That's CA for Canada, not California, but uh, it's the same. Uh, so it's a very practical website. You can download PDFs and get access to things. Uh, we have, uh, we're working actually quite a lot with the Race to the Top uh, states, with the, uh, some of the other grants, with uh, statewide reform in uh, at least, a, uh, I guess, about a dozen states right now. By that, by that, I mean statewide leadership. Five of those are NEA partnerships, and they're about how do you change the capacity of the entire state. Uh, we work quite a bit with school districts. I must say that we never work with one school at a time. I know that you represent turnaround schools, so that's okay. Uh, but we're trying to make sure we connect it to the, uh, to the district. And just a little, uh, uh, I guess, reference point to the ideas. Uh, we've had this golden opportunity in Ontario, in Canada, to work with the province leadership, the premier, whose name is Dalton McGuinty, since 2003 to turn around the entire public school system in Ontario. Uh, it's not so much we've invented the ideas there, it's just that we've had the opportunity to put them into practice. Lots of those ideas came from this country, the professional learning communities that uh, Anthony will talk about, and Rick Dufour's work. A lot of other work we brought together, but we did put it into practice. And when we started in 2003, Ontario has about 12 million people it has 4,000 elementary schools, 900 secondary schools. They're organized into 72 districts. It was a stagnant system, that is to say, when we started. Uh, literacy and numeracy was flatlined for five years. High school graduation was, was stuck at about 68%. And uh, morale of teachers was the only thing that wasn't flatlined. It was slightly declining. So you get the picture that of, of the startup. And I, I should also note that there's no federal agency in Canada in education. This means we don't get any money, but we don't get any grief either. So uh, we're, we, we, are, we can determine our own fate. 
So we put into, and I won't, uh, I'm not going to describe the strategy so much as, uh, say, a few things uh, focused on a small number of, uh, of priorities, literacy, numeracy, high school graduation, uh, developed fairly uh, assertive leadership from the center. We created a new uh, unit at the uh, State Department that was a capacity-building unit in literacy and numeracy, uh, began partnerships with the schools and the school districts, and put into place uh, a system of what we now call capacity building, which is increasing the capacity of people to do this work. And we went light on a judgment. There's no formal accountability in Ontario. Uh, it really is, you get better accountability by investing in the actual work and being transparent about it. So if we jump ahead now, uh, seven years later, uh, we have gone up uh, 13% across the uh, 4,000 schools in literacy and numeracy. We're just waiting for the results later this month for this year, but it should be another couple of percent. So around 15%, 16%. High school graduation has gone from 68% to 79% and is still climbing. Uh, the attrition of teachers in their first four years of teaching, when we started, it was around 32%, and now it's 9% So any given cohort. So you see, you get the picture of the of it's a, it's a good profession to be in, let's say. You get good Im impact, what I call moral purpose realized. So this is encouraging, and, uh, and, uh, and it, it, uh, it, we can talk later when we interact around the ideas about what this looks like in this country, uh, where, uh, as I said, we're increasingly engaged in the race to the top, trying to redefine it as uh, not something that legitimize it's okay to be tough on teachers, but rather something that invests in capacity building to get the work done. So let me give a little bit of an origin of the motion leadership, a, a term that we coined uh, just uh, about uh, really only 12 months ago. And what we, uh, we, we got at it, you have a handout, I think, in your packet, and you can also uh, take, uh, download uh, or, or send along this handout to other people in PDF form from my website. But it came from, uh, originally, from The Six Secrets of Change, this diagram here, which is in a book I did in 2008 that was capturing what we did from 2003 to 2008. So those five years of practical work are now showing up. And you'll see in The Six Secrets, I'm not going to go over them one by one because I'm going to attack it differently this morning with you. But we always do workshops around our material, all-day workshops, uh, uh, training materials and video clips and some of the things I'll share with you. Uh, and we, we started the Six Secrets workshops in a linear fashion, in other words, Secret 1, Secret 2. And you'll see Secret 1 is love your employees. Well, it turns out that not all employees are lovable. So uh, we got a bit sidetracked with that at the beginning and now have rechunked it, if you like, and this has morphed into uh, still drawing forward these concepts, but we've morphed them into a more, I guess I'll say, pedagogical uh, sequence now. Uh, they've morphed into the motion leadership, which is the part I'm going to uh, dwell on with you, and I'll just shape it in a moment. Secondly, uh, and it's a bit pretentious, I know, the title, Motion Leadership, the movie. Uh, it's not really a Hollywood movie, but it's more than a DVD. And we spent the last uh, 12 months... Uh, teaming up with our publisher, Core One and uh, School Improvement Network, PD360, where we have uh, ended up developing an eight-module online video leadership focus. I'm going to show you one of those video clips this morning. And we took um, 
we filmed six districts uh, that had um, that had turned around, if you like, and district, remember, not school, but whole districts. Uh, one is in this state, the one I'll show you partially, at least, uh, Sanger near Fresno, uh, but we also uh, filmed Fort Bend uh, in, near Houston and uh, several others uh, in Ontario, four districts. And in each case, we've, I, I think we've covered the waterfront. That is to say, two districts are uh, smaller, say 15 schools, two are medium with 75 to 80 schools, and two are large with 200 or more schools. So we've got, these concepts apply everywhere. The context is slightly different, but the concepts are the same. Uh, so we um, will get to that part. And then the third part, All Systems Go, is a book that uh, is a companion piece. I'm going to say that this is motion leadership for system leaders. And it's the work that we're interfacing with Race to the Top, with Arnie Duncan as he and trying to get them to shift from... Uh, uh, the getting tough on the problem to this is a job of partnership and capacity building, and they're receptive to that, but lots of politics, obviously. So this uh, this is the uh, uh, the book that criticizes the race to the top as uh, in its current form and says uh, what would have to be done to reposition it to uh, get the results that I'm talking about. Uh, the Ontario strategy, as I said, was high direction and uh, strong direction and high expectations from the center. And, uh, and coupled with partnership, two-way partnerships with schools, districts, and other agencies. So let me then describe what I'd like to do with you. One is I want to zero in on what is motion leadership from the point of view of leading change. So in the next hour, I hope to make you better change agents. That's my modest goal. I know uh, and so that we're going to really get inside that concept of what does it mean? And then you can apply it to your individual uh, role as a leader. You can also apply it to a team. And then the second, I'm going to use uh, some further illustrations about what this looks like in practice. Uh, the Sanger story, for example, a school district that was a uh, low-performance district on notice and turned itself around, and we'll take a look at what that looks like. So let's move then to uh, the question of... Um, motion leadership, and there was in this, uh, if you look at this mod module, I've really rechunked in motion leadership, I've rechunked the three, uh, the six secrets into three pieces, and this is the first piece. It's called the focus on uh, ready, fire, aim, which I'll explain in a moment, the change process. The middle part is uh, the instructional core and I won't go so much into that literally today. You'll see some of it in Sanger, but the instructional core, all those things that you do to improve uh, teaching practice and link it to the use of data and the personalization and the results. And then the third piece is uh, love, trust, and resistance, which is uh, coming back at that question afterwards. So let's start with the change problem. I'm going to call it that. And the change problem is something like this. How do you get a lot of people to put in the energy to get the results when quite a few of them don't want to do it. That's the change problem. And they have good reasons for not wanting to do it. That is, their experience tells them that it's politically motivated, that it'll be, uh, there won't be enough support, that changes will come and go, uh, there'll be overload and lack of follow-through. So they're pretty... Uh, they're, 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 one wouldn't blame anybody for being skeptical about the change. So what we've done is say, how does change really happen? 
and, uh, and then get inside that, and I'm going to share with you the ready-fire-aim thinking here. Ready-fire-aim, it's not literal, it's a metaphor. Uh, ready is important, so it's not just any old thing. Uh, and uh, the phrase was actually made popular in 1982 in Peters and Waterman's In Search of Excellence when they called their companies. They said, these companies have a bias for action. They approach change from a ready-fire-aim mindset. But they weren't very precise about it. And what we've found now in our work in the last seven years in particular, that, these, that, that there's a very specific meaning, nine pieces, in fact, that make this very practical and give us a sense of... Uh, how to approach change differently. And let me say how not to approach it. Let's start with that. Uh, you don't get change through strong moral exhortation. I mean, I don't mind that, but it's not, you don't get change uh, uh, all that readily just by saying there's an urgent problem. You don't get change by marshalling the research data and say, look, it works over here, why can't we do it here? That doesn't work because they're not powerful enough. Uh, let me put it another way. Being right is not a strategy. Right? <laughs> it's not good enough just to be right. So what is good enough? And here's where I want to... I'll just show you the nine insights. They're in your packet, and then we'll take them one by one. In a few cases, I'm going to illustrate it with video. And these are uh, some new ways of thinking about change. And then I'm going to um, summarize it through uh, what we now call three killer slides. I'll tell you why they're called killer slides, but there are three of them that are at the end. So if we take these, and as I said, don't worry about the, the each word, because we're going to do double back and do them one by one. But these are five of the nine, and, and the whole set. So let's see, get inside this and see what it looks like. If we take the first one, which is relationships, everybody knows that relationships are key in le leading in a culture of change one chapter was called Relationships, Relationships, Relationships. So that's known, but what is it? What is, let's get more, uh, we're getting more specific, more precise, more positioning about these things. And here's the way I want to uh, introduce this. Think about the last time you were appointed as a leader and you're heading for your first day on the job of some uh, teacher leadership position or school leadership position. Uh, the dilemma that you face heading for the first day is what I call the too fast, too slow dilemma. If you come on too quickly, saying we've, it's urgent, we've got to make changes around here, the culture rebels, and guess who's leaving town? Cultures don't leave that quickly. If you come on too slowly, you get absorbed into the status quo and there's not enough uh, going on. So what, you, what the sweet spot, I guess I'll say, is this ability to mobilize. Emotion leadership is about mobilizing people into action sooner than later. And uh, here's the advice that comes from this. I just said that part about that. Uh, just from a couple of authors, um, Harold and Federer, and these references are in the back of your handout, they talk about uh, their advice for what they call change-savvy leadership. And I'd like you to just appreciate the language, I guess. Careful entry into the new setting. Listening and learning. Joint problem-solving. Carefully rather than uh, harshly diagnosing the situation. If you think of just that language... It all smacks of being, I've got relationships to build here. It doesn't smack of, I've got a great idea, let's implement it. That, the good ideas have to be part and parcel of that. But we can't, uh, here's another way of putting it. If you want to challenge someone to change, build a relationship with them first. Otherwise, you'll get nowhere. 
I don't want to be, uh, make it sound manipulative or not, but that, you see the notion, the sequence, the flow. If you don't invest in the relationship, you don't have the right to uh, raise challenging questions. The second of the nine is this. And when I finish the nine, I'll ask you to debrief and ask some questions on this. This looks a bit daunting, but it's really simple, and there's some good insights in it. Uh, we've had in our own work the finding that we call the implementation dip. And the implementation dip is if this is the status quo and you uh, introduce a change, even if you've done some preparation prior to the introduction, the first six months or so will be bumpy. So that you can see once you describe it that that looks like it's kind of normal. So we've talked about the implementation dip. It's helped to bring it out in the open. It's helped to be able to do something about it. Uh, then along com uh, comes um, Harold and Fetter, and they have the identical finding in business. They call it the depth of decline, not the implementation dip, but it's identical to my concept. And they have three things here. There's the latter two is what I want to emphasize. They say when change is introduced from outside, usually, the myth of change is things are going to get better right away. It'll go up, but it doesn't happen that way. So that's, uh, that's just by way of background as far as I'm concerned. But what I'd like you to, to take you, though, is inside the triangle, right in here, in that triangle, from two perspectives. One perspective is teachers implementing a change. And uh, if you take that, I remember I'm talking about the beginning of inside the triangle. For a teacher implementing a change, even if they want to do it, the cost to them are palpable, concrete, and immediate, the cost, because they're not good at it. The gains are theoretical and distant. What does that mean? That the negative outweighs the positive at that stage of the process. Now, let's go to the skinny on uh, what it means to be a leader here. One thing, don't expect very many compliments. People are not having a plus day on balance. They still may like you, and there may be other things, but the, uh, so you see the, uh, the incentives are out of whack in favor of the negative. What we've been doing in our work is taking the bottom line of this and having it cross the plane a lot sooner because of the nature of the strategies we're using. So instead of that being that top line being 36 months, it becomes 14 months, cut in half or more. And, that, and clearly, when you break the plane here, this is where you get a lot of new energy because it's worth it because you're getting more out of it than you're putting into it, because your peers know that. And that's the big uh, kind of uh, kickstart uh, forward from there. So a very important part of that is to understand the nature of the implementation dip, to do the things of motion leadership to get success earlier, sooner. So number three, this is obviously skinny language, beware of fat plans. Uh, that, uh, and I love the way that Doug Reeves puts it. He, he's, always, he's phrased it the best of anyone. The size and the prettiness of the implementation plan is inversely related to the quality of action and in turn to impact on learning. So this, again, it makes common sense once you bring it out of the open. Uh, he did, in one of his studies, he and his researchers looked at 300 school improvement plans, uh, had the researchers rate the quality of the plan according to the rubrics to be followed, and then looked at the action after that, the, the uh, student learning, and they drew this conclusion. The higher the rating of the plan on paper, the less impressive the action. Now, that sounds odd, except when you stop and think about it. Uh, why, are, why are plans seductive? Because there are no people on those pages, only great PowerPoint diagrams. And so the lesson here is that, uh, and we'll get at it two or three different ways, 
is that the, uh, you're far better off to have a five-page plan than a 25-page plan, for example. I don't mean to be that literal. When we did, uh, first did the uh, Ontario strategy, one of the uh, things that we had to do was change the culture of the State Department of Education, our Ministry of Education, uh, which is a big task, actually, uh, because they didn't have the capacity to do the work we're talking about. So we wanted to change it in two ways. One is reduce the silos in the Ministry of Education, so you don't have a bunch of departments that independently are doing different things. And then also reposition it so it could have a better two-way partnership with the 72 school districts. So we did that, and we hired uh, uh, one of my colleagues uh, as uh, deputy minister, who's the chief civil servant, state superintendent of education equivalent. And uh, he, he followed these ideas, and he put in, uh, they were putting an implementation plan into place for the ministry. It was about seven pages long, but what he did, a really clever thing, he put the word draft on that plan, and he said to his staff, the word draft will never come off this plan. We will always call it a draft. I mean, it, was, it, it had, people knew it. They could, they, could, uh, they, could, uh, they could cite it. They talked about it. It had meaning to them. But it didn't have overly formal labels of a big implementation plan. So seduction of planning is a problem. Uh, certainly, I don't mean don't do any planning. Ready is planning. But don't go overboard on planning because planning in the absence of action uh, just makes things more complex, less meaningful. One of the key words we have in motion leadership is simplexity. Simplexity is, uh, as it says, is let's, this is not, this is not um, mysterious, but it's not simple, but it's not overly complex. Let's not make it more complex than it has to be. And when you do big plans, you make it more complex than it has to be. Number four, behaviors before beliefs. This has been uh, in research on attitudinal change, which is that for most of us, we change our behaviors first a little bit before we get insights into new beliefs. Uh, this means if you want to have a chance of, of changing somebody, you don't try to talk them into it. That's trying to change, attack their belief system head on. You give them new experiences with other people, let's say, that are a little bit farther down the line, and it's the experiences that are the hook. Uh, and that's, that makes a lot of sense because the rational approach is only, only getting to the mind, the experience that gets to the gut, the emotions. And, and uh, this is why it's a bit messy at the beginning, but ready, fire, aim means that you're creating at the fire part the behavioral experiences that will cause people to get further engaged, and I'll, I'll, that'll become clear in the killer slides that I get to. So very important to know this, uh, that you're not, you don't want to load up on the rational part in advance. The fifth one, and this is new and it's very important as well, it's the finding uh, that communication during implementation is way more important than communication prior to implementation. And yet we tend to do the reverse. We tend to do the front-end communication because we want to get the big ideas out there and get people excited. And I'm going to give you a little video clip here that will illustrate this. Uh, this is a, uh, a four-minute video clip from a CEO of a municipality uh, in England, in this case, who, like most new leaders, comes in with a mandate to create a new vision and a new strategy for the, for the operation. Uh, she spends, and she'll tell us in her own words, <clears throat> she spent 12 months talking around the place and getting the ideas going. And what I'd like you to listen for is what was the yield? What did she get out of this 12 months of engagement in advance of implementation with lots of communication? 
let's take a listen. So if you think about this, uh, here's someone who looks very articulate and engaging, spent 12 months talking it up around the place, and at the end of it ended up with 4% in favor, 20% of 20%. That's a very low yield. Why is that the case? And I'm going to say it this way. Because communication in the absence of action is almost meaningless. Not fully meaningless, but almost meaningless. So communication without action is, it's not because people lie, maybe that's too as well, but it's just because it's not meaningful. It's not connected to your action. And so that you need to instead uh, reverse the emphasis. Certainly the readiness and the direction And these days with uh, schools that are identified for turnaround, the ready part, at least in the sense of having a problem, isn't isn't necessary to dwell on, but getting going is. And that uh, this communication, and what what we've done in our own work in communication is uh, when we start a strategy, we spend a lot of time at the beginning of uh, each meeting, and this is only not a lot of time, we spend time frequently, uh, meeting after meeting, uh, just about five minutes at the beginning. Let me just say how I did it in Ontario. If we were meeting with school teams or district teams, I'd start the meeting every time with this. Remember the Ontario goals and strategy. Literacy, numeracy, high school graduation, goals, strategy, capacity building with a focus on results through partnership. It took me a minute to say that. And then we would do a think, pair, share and say, okay, talk to the person beside you and identify what's going well from your point of view in this strategy, what's not going so well, so we get that. What you do with that kind of frequent, small amounts of communication, punctuating all the way along, is you reinforce the, the priorities. You, re, you communicate more clearly the vision. You hear about what's going wrong and you problem solve. You tweak and refine it, and people know the answers to what, uh, what we're going to do. When we look at Sanger, for example, uh, they have three beliefs, core beliefs, Everybody in the system knows that those three beliefs are hope is not a strategy. Number two, don't blame the kids. And number three, it's all about learning. That's all they have, just those three. You go to anywhere, any teacher in Sanger, and they will be able to say, these are the core beliefs. So core beliefs, small in number, constantly talked about, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be belabored, but it has to be frequent. People have to understand it. They have to act accordingly. And then uh, this one, big one, certainly uh, Anthony would talk about it. Learning about implementation during implementation is at the heart of PLC strategies because teachers are learning from each other, facilitated by leaders who enable that. In our more recent work, we've been uh, working with schools learning from each other. Let me um, give a concrete example. We have a project called Schools on the Move. Uh, We only have 4,000 elementary schools. Uh, But these schools on the move, there are about 150 that are in the current list. They've had success at improving literacy and numeracy in the last uh, three years on most of the scores on those two uh, domains. And what we do is profile those schools informally on two pages electronically. Here's the nature of the school, the demographics. Here's what they, a couple of ideas of what they did, the results they got over the three years. And then we make money available for people to learn from them. When I say go light on judgment, uh, not going light on judgment with that strategy would be something like this. These schools are doing well. You're not doing so well. Why can't you be more like your brother? That would be a judgmental statement. 
Whereas we say, this is hard work. Some people are figuring it out. Let's take a closer look at what they're doing. Practice drives practice. It has to be led. And so it's intra-school as well as inter-school that this learning has to come. You learn more from your peers as long as it's purposeful and focused than you do from uh, anything else. Sirwicki called this the excitement of, or the wisdom of the crowd. The wisdom of the crowd, all I'm saying is you have to work the crowd. You have to have a strategy that pulls out the lessons and spreads them laterally. So that's uh, the first six. Let's talk about the latter three. Uh, Here's a very interesting one. Excitement prior to implementation is fragile. This is one of the few areas of humankind, I think, when premature excitement is not an advantage. Uh, So that uh, uh, if you get a grant, if you're about to start something, the excitement goes up like this, and then the implementation dip, the fall is even deeper. So that this notion of excitement being fragile, uh, let me put it another way. Uh, I'm pretty sure about this, uh, this conclusion from the research, that high agreement in advance of implementation bears little relationship to the eventual quality of implementation. Low agreement in advance of implementation does not mean there won't be high quality implementation. Advanced agreement doesn't mean very much, right? Because, it, I mean, it helps, I suppose, if you've got a positive attitude, but there's no, there's no there there in advanced agreement. And so I want to give you uh, a little uh, test here on this question. I'm going to ask you to identify in this next video clip which penguin has been at the latest workshop. So that's your task. Well, no prize for getting it right. It's a bit too obvious. Uh, we, we all know that good leaders energize others, right? There's a lone innovator who not only doesn't energize others, they annoy them. Most of us have earned our cynicism the hard way, and we want to enjoy it. We don't want to be reminded by some Pollyanna bopping around in an unrealistic fashion. So the goal is not to be unexcited. The goal is to figure out how to be positively, contagiously excited. And ready, fire, aim builds the contagion, the positive contagion. These strategies create more and more ownership as you go through. So let's take uh, last two here. Take risk and learn. Almost everyone uh, will agree that when you look at the organizational literature, risk-taking is so important. Well, it doesn't, turns out people don't practice that that often. And with a heavy-handed accountability, people are even more nervous. They play it <clears throat> closer to the best. <clears throat> so that what we have to uh, realize is that this, especially the early period when the implementation dip is going to be there, that the attitude towards learning and mistakes and getting better has to be a culture that favors that. And what can you do internally, even though you've got a lot of... Um, um, kind of punitive accountability above you, what can you do internally to make that more possible? Let me give another example on a big scale. Very good, ready, fire, ram, turn the district around. One of our districts that we filmed is uh, Ottawa, in Ottawa, Canada, a district with about 84 schools. And the, uh, the, the superintendent of the district, who was hired seven years ago, came from inside the system. He was a high school principal, did a little work at the district, and then was appointed as leader. And when I interviewed him on film, I said, his name is Jamie McCracken, I said, what, what was the culture that you inherited because you came from the inside, you knew it so well? He said the culture was, and he used a very, what I would call skinny word, he said the culture was clenched. That one word had a whole bunch of meaning, uptight, 
oh, people weren't doing thing, things. Uh, they were afraid to take chances. Uh, there were too many innovations around, no focus, etc. And so he came in and he did uh, two, what he called reimagining days, which was the whole professional staff one day and the whole support staff another day, saying how, what we sh- what we sh- how should we be different in the future, what we should do. And then he did two things. Like Sanger, he came up with three core beliefs. Some of it came from the reimagining days, some from himself, I guess. And these three core beliefs, they'll sound familiar, uh, student success, staff development, which is capacity for uh, professional and non-professional staff, and the third one he called stewardship of resources, uh, which was uh, how human resources and money is uh, well spent. So those three, again, if you go into Ottawa, big district, lots of the 84 schools, ask almost anyone, including the, uh, the custodians, and they can tell you Ottawa's three core beliefs. Then, they, then he said at the same time, these are our beliefs, and we haven't tried enough, so I'm, what I'm going to say is I'm going to take a really favorable attitude towards uh, trying things and getting better at them. And we know mistakes will be made. Don't worry about it. We've got to make progress. They got into that. They're, the, they're one of the highest performing districts in terms of moving their literacy and numeracy upward in their high school graduation. Tremendous results, 30% or so over a seven-year period uh, and results sooner than that. So this is about risk-taking that's purposeful, especially near the beginning of a change process. Uh, that is, it's, it's uh, important that people uh, figure out how to, how to do this. And again, you'll debrief on this with me in a few minutes. The last one, it's okay to be assertive. Uh, this is, it sounds a bit odd, I guess, because in what I've been saying, lots of participation and partnership, where's the le- leadership here? And I'm going to put it this way, especially in turnaround schools and turnaround school districts, you need to be as assertive as you can get away with. That's the way to put it. And what are, I'm going to give you three conditions here that I think are conditions of assertive leadership. One is when you've built some degree of trust. If you don't have trust, it takes you ages to get anything done. If you do have trust, you'll be given the benefit of the doubt quite often. So building, this is building relationships, trust. Secondly, when it turns out you have a good idea, not self-evident, but what the leaders we're talking about are immersed in the joint problem solving, and therefore they come to have quite a few good ideas as part of the leadership group. And third is when um, they empower people from day one to shape and reshape, that kind of creating the collaborative culture, the shared leadership that Anthony will talk about and so forth. These things work. They're, uh, they're, they're kind of uh, described chapter and verse in named schools and named school districts now. Uh, what I'd, um, let me tell you what I'm going to do next, but I want to ask you to debrief on this first part. Uh, after we debrief, we'll come back, and I want to talk about... Uh, uh, a sentence accountability, the killer slides, and then uh, show you the Sanger clip and ask you to interpret it in terms of the kinds of things you're trying to do in your projects. But before we get to that, let's take a pause here and do a simple think, pair, share. It could be three, but don't talk to yourself. One other person at least. Two or three. And uh, here's the, here are the two questions. Uh, what, I, uh, what I said in the last 45 minutes showed you what idea best resonated with you. What, what idea best connected? Let's call that the aha question. And the other question is, uh, what question mark or puzzle is foremost on your mind about this way of thinking? We call that the worry list. So the aha connection resonated, the worry list question, the worry list question mark. So take about five minutes, just internal to the twosome or threesome, then we'll surface this, see what we have. Go ahead. 
All right, let's start with uh, two or three of what I call the, the what connected best. Just raise your hand, call it out. I'll paraphrase it back for the whole room. We'll do this fairly quickly. Go ahead. The penguin, is that you? What, have you ever been like that? <laughs> yeah? Okay, so the penguin, a nice visual, uh, you know, you have to be enthusiastic, but I'll, I'll talk about empathy in a few moments. You have to get at other people who aren't so enthusiastic. <laughs> He's going to practice. Okay, yeah. Building trust is extremely important. This is an investment. Uh, Stephen Covey Jr. wrote a book about four years ago called The Speed of Trust. You know it? And it's, it makes sense when you think about it. When you have trust, you can move a hell of a lot faster. When you don't have trust, it takes you forever. You may not get there, actually. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and even if you're wrong and you're assertive, if you have trust, people are more likely to be, okay, get a, get a better next time. Let's mix them up here now if you want to, yeah. Yeah, okay, involving others in the decision-making. We'll talk about that in a moment. If you involve others in the decision-making, it slows you down, right? Because they may have different opinions. So it's not so easy, but it's absolutely essential. Yes. Uh, yeah, not necessarily, but uh, let's take your point, because it is the right one. In, uh, in, um, in these turnaround examples that I'm thinking about, uh, two schools that we were, we were really close to, large elementary schools, one in 12 months, they gained 30% in literacy and numeracy, 12 months later, by, uh, by, by paying attention to uh, some of the good things that were happening, them building on it, and uh, moving quickly by doing the right things. The other one took three years. Uh, it's, it was large elementary, but was a toxic culture. And they did, he did build on strengths. Didn't, uh, some uh, five teachers out of 40 left, so it wasn't like a big turnover. But there was persistence. We'll get to this in the killer slides in a moment. A couple more. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if, if, um, if a typical teacher in a typical school can't cite the core mission statement and beliefs of the district or the school, then who, who cares how good it sounds on paper? Yeah. Because right. the two I gave you, the two I gave you are very specific and they're very memorable. Uh, well, I gave, the, I gave our example, that is to say, I was giving it from the point of, I could have been a school superintendent, I could have been a, a principal, but in this case, I was uh, at the central you know, government level, so to speak, talking with schools, teams, or school districts, and saying, okay, uh, so now I'm communicating, here's our strategy in Ontario, uh, literacy, numeracy, high school graduation, and focusing on capacity building, which is investment and in, uh, helping people get better at teaching, more effective at the particulars. So um, that's, that's one half of it. The other half, I was pulling out what's working and what's not working. So as a leader, I'm using these forums of communication to very informally and quickly keep nailing the strategy and communication and keep listening about what's working and what's not working. Does that make sense? I won't talk so much about resistance today because we probably need more of a whole day to deal with everything. But uh, my attitude toward, first of all, motion leadership is actually about creating commitment as you go, right? It's not about 
identifying the committed and working with them. It's creating additional commitment as you go. So that's uh, the, the, uh, the, you get a lot more people on board via these nine strategies. Uh, and so when we think of progress, we say, okay, at the end of year one, do we have more commitment than we had at the beginning? At the end of year two, do we have more commitment than we had at the beginning of year one? So uh, ownership, think of ownership and commitment as a process of keep building it. And then on the resistance side, and I, I guess uh, I would put it this way. It'll come, well, let, let me leave it for one of the color slides in a couple of minutes we'll come back to. Yes? Plan is a draft, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that, just to say it out loud more, the plan as a draft is a great concept, actually. And it has more meaning even as a draft than it is if you try to more formalize it. It's, it just feels better, it's just, but it's still focused. Okay, so let me uh, take... Uh, I want to take you to these killer slides as another way of underscoring some points that I've made. Uh, the, the, where they became this, when I did last year, a few months ago actually, a assignment for the National College of School Leadership in England where they, want, they were doing an online learning course for leaders and they said, would you help us uh, develop this by doing a short paper on the leadership landscape and identifying examples of change and so forth. It wasn't video-based, it was print-based, or at least on, uh, electronically. So they said also, in the course of doing that, come up with three killer slides. Uh, they said the killer slides are the best insights that you've had in the last 12 months. And so I took that and I gave them these uh, killer slides. They actually came from practice. Uh, but, uh, and then when they got them, they said, well, we don't like the word killer after all. It's too <laughs> aggressive. But I still call them killer slides, so that's, that's just a... Uh, aside, but here, here's, uh, here's three ways. I don't know whether you, I don't think you have these in your packet. They're brief, but they're very insightful, I'm going to say. Here's the first one. All effective leaders combine resolute moral purpose with impressive empathy. We always knew about resolute moral purpose. You know, you have to stay with it. You have to keep going. Impressive empathy, I'll define this way. Impressive empathy is empathy you have for other people who disagree with you. That's why it's impressive. Why is it necessary? Unless they're going to leave town, you better figure out how to build a relationship. And if you have empathy from where they're coming from, you're more likely to find the connection. And so, and I got this actually from Jamie Oliver, the uh, chef, uh, because we were using some of his films in training. And he uh, said about in England, he's done some work here, but in the England part, to change the eating habits of British kids in school. And they were, they were eating terrible food. It, it was unquestionable. So he had to go in and he said, I want to change a whole borough, a whole uh, district. Uh, he selected Greenwich, which is a district in part of London. 60 schools, 20,000 kids. So the change agent question is, how does he change the eating habits of 20,000 kids when they don't want to change? When each of the schools has a head dinner lady, that's their language for the head of cafeteria food, head dinner lady, and they can't cook. I don't know. I mean, and, and so here's, he, he is an expert, and instead of being frustrated by the head dinner ladies, he's empathetic. He should have been frustrated because they're, you know, they're needed and they're not good enough. But he was empathetic and said, uh, 
Uh, I have nothing but fear for the head dinner ladies, is the way he put it. So I picked up this kind of, I said, this is really impressive empathy. And then I started to think of other places. And this is when you're coming in as leadership and you're facing some people. Now, some people are, uh, I guess I'll say, deadly against you. So that you have to be careful here. I don't mean blanket. But basically, leaders above moral purpose, that's what we're talking about, have to figure out how to get this uh, impressive empathy in, in relationship to other people who can uh, build towards it and, and build more change. When I think of, uh, the, incidentally, the uh, question was asked about get the committed and not so committed, here's my attitude or, I guess, mindset about resistance. One is, it's a kind of three, a three, a threefold mindset. One is, Give people respect before they've earned it. Give people the benefit of the doubt and give them respect before they've earned it. And in fact, they might be acting in disrespectful ways anyways, and they haven't earned it, but give them respect anyways, a priori. This is part of love your employees. Second, do everything possible to make them more lovable. Right? Create the conditions, the incentives, the all of the things we're talking about. And third, deal firmly with what's left over. I mean, that you see where the emphasis here is? Uh, it's not that kind of step one, two, three, but it's that, that, is the, that is the approach. And it turns out if you do the first two things, I'm going to say 90% of resistance evaporates because people are getting something out of it, they're putting something into it. And in fact, when you deal with the, the other 10%, so to speak, people are more... Uh, peers are saying it's about time some action was taken in relation to that. People get sick of the naysayers if, if, if a lot of other things are moving in the right direction. So this, that's a bit oversimplified, but I think it gives the emphasis. So that's number one. Number two, what energizes educators is realized moral purpose. This is really important for your role in the school turnaround question. And what this means is If you're a teacher in a persistently failing school, deep down, you probably don't believe that these particular kids can learn. You wouldn't want to say it that way, but deep down you're wondering whether that. What is going to change a person's mind who has that that mindset? I've already said two things that won't change their mind. Additional moral exhortation and data that show that other schools like yours have changed. Why, why Why aren't those convincing? Because there's no how there. There's only what. What what is convincing, and I'm thinking of the actual schools we've worked with, is that new leadership, maybe it's a new principal, it doesn't have to be, and some resources outside the school team up to work with that particular school to get the success. And 24 months later, when you have a degree of success, those teachers will say, we'll never go back to the old way of doing things. Uh, it, uh, they, the, what, what the, the clincher here is the realized moral purpose, what actually uh, was accomplished. What was accomplished is the motivator, not what should be accomplished. So very important, I think, part of this. Uh, get the success going, and then you can uh, get the commitment deeply reinforced. Here's the third one, and uh, it's a bit of a jargony sentence, but it's this. We've worked a lot, as I said earlier, with clusters of schools learning from each other. And usually before we've started it, and some, usually it's, it's actually within a district, clusters of three, five, six, eight, or whatever, and they have leadership, they develop it. And what they, uh, when they start, people say, well, we don't have time to, uh, to network with other schools. 
Uh, we don't want to give them our best ideas because we've gone developed them through blood, sweat, and tears, and they, they're not going to have an easy way to get at them. We don't want to brag too much, so therefore, uh, all of that. When we start doing this, purposeful networks, and I'll show you a little clip of one later, just a three-minute clip of a teacher leader talking about it. In every case, what has happened is two good things. One is the leaders of those schools develop mutual allegiance to each other, right? They, they become almost as concerned about the success of other schools in their network as they are in their own. That's what I mean by mutual allegiance. They're proud of each other. They'll help each other. The second thing, and this is really a, a surprise and a good surprise, what creeps in is friendly competition. I can do better than I did last year. I can do better than you. And you got, well, I'll call it moral Olympics. They start, because it is about moral purpose, and they are kind of leveraging each other to get better, and it is within the context of mutual allegiance. These are powerful social forces, mutual allegiance and collaboration, competition, I should say, uh, collaborative competition, very important combination. So let me uh, do a couple of uh, things on showing you what this looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And the, on the transparency or the, uh, well, you call it disparate. The, uh, you heard one of the principals say, that, well, there was no, uh, there was no uh, mechanism or no systems in place, he said. So people were doing their own thing. If you then propose collaboration, people will not necessarily believe collaboration is going to be an advantage. They have to experience it well-led for them to change their mind to say, yeah, it is advantage. After they experience it, they do change their mind if it's a good experience. A working definition. A collaboration is uh, when a team gets together and in a focused way to link uh, data to um, instructional practices that meet the individual needs of the students in question. Uh, that would be one way of putting it. Uh, Anthony will talk more about that. Uh, Rick Dufour's book uh, several months ago, which is called Raising the Bar and Closing the Gap, it has chapter after chapter of named schools and named districts using PLCs, of which collaboration is the centerpiece. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, a, it's a bit of a tricky question because it depends on what size of it, but the, the short answer for me is uh, two things. One is we're talking about the proliferation of leadership in all of this work. You're cultivating leadership all over the place. Some people call it distributive leadership. You're, you're, there's a collaborative leadership going on day after day. They build the leadership for the future. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, that's trickier is that I do think there has to be somebody, I'm going to say in line authority, that will make it happen organizationally. That is the principal is key. The superintendent is key. Uh, uh, but you can have leadership at the, at the other levels despite the principal despite the superintendent. It's just that the whole system is not likely to keep improving under those conditions. Uh, well, their actual, uh, uh, their actual case is that they, use, they integrate three things in their system of instruction. One is PLC, the other is RTI, and the other is direct instruction. So their training and capacity building they do all the time is around teams learning how to do that. So it's a line, that's one thing. Number two is they ne you would never, uh, a good system will never use data independent of its use, of its smooth use. Data as, you know, produce data over here and then hope it gets used over there. It's much more integrated. That's the second thing. Third thing, they've got a whole bunch of leaders 
who are doing this day after day in problem solving. So teacher leaders, school leaders. So that stuff would, would, would not go unnoticed because they're on top of it. You've heard them talk about it. They're on top of it day after day. Rick Dufour, Richard Elmore, um, Doug Reeves, myself, have all said the same thing in the last 12 months. Maybe we're copying each other, but it's this. This is not about programs. This is about people and practices. Every time that's what, what it said. It's not the textbook. It's not the technology. It's not the latest program that's going to solve your problem. It's the practices and the people getting good at those practices. That is the basic one. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, that comment and your comment here are the same domain. And this is the reason why we never work with one school at a time. Our smallest unit is the district. Because if the district doesn't have its act together the way these guys do, uh, this, it's hard, much harder to do this. You can still do it as an individual school, but it's a lot better if you're having the system in line between the district and the school. And that's why we're promoting this, not promoting it, but conveying it out there. It's about system coherence, system focus, system alignment. This really works when you put it together. This is not PLC intra-school. This is changing the culture of the district. Yeah, the, the, about the celebration about uh, things, one rule, it's the same rule we ha you, have with, you should have with students, is don't praise people excessively before they've done anything. Right? It doesn't ring all that true. And so what you, this is why realized moral purpose. And, and uh, you're right, that when the first examples start to, there's two things about it. One is, when your first examples start to happen positively, you want to recognize that and really, because it's accomplished, it's not everything, but it's a start. The second thing is you never want to be excessively judgmental, which is the opposite of praise, obviously, and, and will be discouraging in the, in the judgment part. Yeah, well, this is why we're, we're, we're writing and showing it. It doesn't work. Uh, punitive accountability uh, might work a little bit, but you win the, a small battle and you lose the big war in that one. The districts that we've been filming, um, I'm going to show you a short clip from the Toronto district, which has 550 schools. So it's not quite your large, but it's not tiny. It's not small either. And um, you do need uh, you do need in a large district. I mean, I guess my attitude towards it would be that you need to have the the clusters of schools that are geographical within the district be the collaborative sub-district culture in which the, which the leadership of the big unified is coordinating that work, right? So just be, let me give, show you a very, uh, this is actually quite a short uh, clip um, that ties into this a little bit at least. And uh, I want to position it, we just have a, a few minutes to go, so I want to just give you more of a context here the middle chunk, and I'm not going to go over this in detail, but this is what I call the instructional core and motion leadership. We've been touching on it because of the questions you've asked. What, does, what happens in the um, instructional core is that our strategies, if you like, are integrating these four things. Lots of purposeful peer learning within the school and across the school, uh, across the schools, the district. Sanger's a good example. Uh, capacity building trumps judgmentalism is the second one. And if we had more time, we could get into the ins and outs of judgmentalism. But basically, um, what we try to do is build up capacity, the skills of doing this, and go light on judgment because judgment gets in the way 
of building up capacity. So we uh, some interesting training. I just ask you to think about think about the last time you received feedback on something, and whether or not that you felt put down or motivated. So the feedback that motivates people is the expertise that I'm talking about. No feedback is not very good, and feedback that's punitive is dysfunctional. So how to, that's how we do that one. Learning is the work. I want to underscore that. This is what happens in between workshops. I, I, I like uh, the, uh, there's an article written by an Australian a few years ago. It had a wonderful title, and the article is good too. The title was this, Professional Development, colon, A Great Way to Avoid Change. And what he went, what he went on to, to say was, these people are going to workshops and courses and getting their master's degrees, but in between the workshops, the day-to-day culture isn't changing. We call it learning as the work. It's the hardest thing to do because you have to do it every day. What you saw in Sanger was learning is the work. They had the workshops. You didn't see any of them. They do get training on RTI and PLCs and direct instruction. So that's an input, but you never saw that. You saw the manifestation of doing it. And that's, that's number. And then five is the transparency rules, which is about practice and, um, and results. If you have trust and you have full transparency, accountability is almost a given. Think about it that way. So let me show you just a short clip, three minutes. This is uh, in the Toronto district. I mentioned there are uh, 500 plus schools. They're organized into 24 uh, uh, clusters of uh, sets of schools, about 20 or more schools in each one. And we use the same principles here, a cluster of 24 schools, well-led, by a uh, coordinator who facilitates uh, principals working and school teams working across these. And what you'll hear here is a literacy coordinator, literacy leader, and I'd like you to think about the, lead, the language she uses to describe how things have changed in the past two years as a result of doing this. That's, all, that's the only thing to think about. So that's an example of a cluster of, say, 20 or so schools. That's one of 24 of those in a large district where the whole district is trying to foster collaboration in bite-sized pieces, if you like. And the same principles that you saw in Sanger start to come alive then for those schools. Their literacy and numeracy went up 25% in three years across the schools, all the elementary schools. So it does work. It's consistent. All the message is the same. It's showing up in different formats, but it's... Uh, Core message is the same. So um, thank you very much. Good luck on your work. I'm hoping that it'll be successful. Thank you.